As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. My name is Victor Furman. Some call me The Voice. I've always been fascinated with human nature, spirituality, science, and the crossroads at which they meet. Join me now and we will explore these topics and so much more with fascinating guests, authors, and experts who will guide us to Destination Unlimited. For several centuries, science has been stuck in a materialist worldview, with the central assumption being that everything is essentially material or physical, even our minds. Contrary to popular belief, not all scientists are materialists, fervently discounting the spiritual. My guest this week on Destination Unlimited, Professor Paul J. Mills, has interviewed some of the world's foremost scientists who recount their own transpersonal, metaphysical, and mystical experiences and how these experiences transformed their scientific work. He joins me this week to share his new book, Science, Being, and Becoming, The Spiritual Lives of Scientists. Please join me in welcoming to Destination Unlimited, Paul J. Mills. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Victor. It's a pleasure to be here. And Looking thank you forward. for joining us and sharing your very important book and your very important work. So please share with our listeners your early path and how it birthed your interest in both science and spirituality. Sure, I'd be happy to. My, my interest in science actually grew out of my early interest in spirituality. When I was a, a young boy in high school, I learned a meditation. And a couple of months into practicing, I had what is often called an out-of-body experience, where I, while I was seated meditating, I found myself out in a vast space of consciousness looking down upon my body. And it was both me, Paul, but another me, that I'd never really encountered before, something more vast, as I said, and uh, peaceful and, and somehow familiar with this experience that was new to me as Paul. And that led me to uh, deep dives and reading lots of books, primarily from Eastern philosophy and Vedanta. And then I said to myself, I'm going to become a scientist so I can study really the nature of the human being that I wasn't familiar with thus far and and just probe that. What is the limit of our potential, really? So it was a spiritual experience that led you to study science. 
Very, very much so, yes. Tell us a little bit more about your meditation practice and how it evolved. Well, when I was in high school, that was transcendental meditation that I learned. And a friend had heard about TM and said, hey, Paul, I, I know you well, and I think this might be something you'd like to do. So I went to an introductory lecture, learned the technique, and it was very pleasant and very normal as far as relaxation experiences and things like that up until this out-of-body experience. And as I began to study Eastern philosophy, that helped me understand more of my potential. And over the many, many years of practicing meditation regularly, I began to have more and more of these types of experiences that that further prompted and guided me to continue my scientific work. And it ultimately actually led to this book that, that I just published uh, and came out a few days ago. Many of our listeners practice both yoga and meditation. Do you have any advice for them? Hmm. My advice would be to continue <laughs> to be faithful to your practice. And for those who maybe some years ago learned a meditation technique and then felt, you know what, meditation isn't good for me, but they may base that decision just on exposure to one technique. And there are really dozens of methodologies out there. So if the one you tried didn't fit, didn't resonate, and you stopped, seek another one. And if that doesn't work, seek another one, because ultimately you will find something that works for you and provides you uh, a, a sense certainly of, of peace and relaxation, but also ho hopefully ultimately would begin as a nice method for you to uncover coming into communion with your truer self, the self beyond the simple mind, body, thoughts, and feelings that we routinely have. Let's talk a little bit more about that out-of-body experience you had. How old were you at the time? I was uh, nine, 18. And just describe it a little more in depth for those who have never had one. Yeah, I, I'd be happy to. As I indicated, I had been practicing meditation fairly regularly. And one day I went outside into a field where we lived. We grew up, I grew up in a country. And I sat underneath this beautiful oak tree out in the field to begin my normal practice. And, and the way it unfolded for me is within a few moments of sitting down and closing my eyes, it was, it was suddenly like clicking of a finger. I was no longer perceiving from within my body as I normally did. I was up above my body and behind my body a bit perhaps, and we're just going to make a guess, maybe 10 feet. And I could very clearly see my body sitting down there under the tree on the leaves. I could see the back of my head, uh, my back, and so forth. Initially, I was startled because I had never had such an experience. In fact, I had never heard anything like this was possible. But as I mentioned earlier, there was a part of me that this experience was also familiar with. And I, I'm, I'm saying that's the part of us that's our, let's say, truer identity beyond our affiliation with our mind and body. That part of me was comfortable with it. And that helped me settle into the experience. And as I settled into it, there were other features that began to emerge to my experience and awareness. And that was the sense of peace and quietness, and expansiveness. And these were all new to me. 
And it lingered for quite a while, and then it was gone. And essentially, I was back in my body. And that's what led me on the path that really I've continued up to this day. And have you had an, another experience of a similar nature since that time? I have. My meditation practice, and, and I, in addition to TM over the years, I've learned quite a number of other techniques uh, as far as exploring other methods for enlivening consciousness and expanding consciousness. And I've had many changes in my state of consciousness, my experience of consciousness as a result of uh, practicing those techniques and presumably just ongoing life. Uh, and specifically in terms of experiencing myself as beyond the limits, the typical limits as understood of our thoughts and feelings in mind-body and affiliating more with the expanse of, of consciousness itself. Beyond the material nature of our bodies. Yes, thank you for that. <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> so you had this experience, it put you on a projection toward a science career. Tell us how your life ensued after that. Yeah, I I, I was getting my PhD some years later as I continued on my meditation practice. And my scientific career ultimately led me into a fairly traditional, what I would call a biomedical research career. I ended up at the University of California, San Diego, which is a high-level research institution, and plugged into that, where I'd been for over three decades, studying normal things such as psychoneuroimmunology, cardiology, oncology, behavioral medicine, and some other fields, but all the while maintaining and cultivating this other interest of mine in life and this other aspect of my my being we could say and uh that that's how it's gone so far and over the years i've met many scientists of course at hundreds of scientific meetings uh, around the us and the world and it would always be of interest to me i would wonder i wonder if they're on a similar path as i am do they pursue a spiritual life but at the same time have a scientific life, but they're not speaking about it. Because I never spoke about this to anybody, frankly. It wasn't until putting this book together that I just decided, I'm just going to speak about it now. And maybe it will help encourage other scientists, as well as other people in general, to begin to cultivate uh, their spiritual inheritance, if I can put it that way. Were you ever concerned about the reaction of your colleagues and peers in sharing these experiences? Yeah, very much so, Victor. In fact, in the book, there's a section, the introduction, where I'm telling a fair amount of my story, and then I weave more of my story in other chapters. I did. I Honestly, I had a certain kind of dread off and on for the couple of years I was writing the book that when this is published and out there, what will my colleagues, my academic colleagues think? Because many of them are more in the materialistic mindset, meaning their belief is that there's nothing spiritual whatsoever, that we are body only and genes only, and that's the end of it. And I, I, I do wonder about that still, uh, but it doesn't bother me as it did initially when I started writing the book. I guess I've come to peace with it, that so be it. They'll, they'll think what they can, but if it helps others in their journey, then, then it's going to be very well worth it. Let's talk a little bit for our listeners who are not familiar with what the term materialist science means. Now, the early scientists were not necessarily materialist, were they? No, not at all. 
many, uh, if we go back to the beginning of the scientific enterprise some 400 years ago, these folks were deeply, certainly religious, and I think at that time, spiritual as well, Galileo and others. And, and that's about the time that it's typically attributed that we had the split in science being, say, walled off from certain areas of knowing, those areas being the so-called spiritual world, the metaphysical, the mystical, that was basically put off limits. And and from my point of view, that, that was a significant downside because, as you know, around the world these days, science is really looked upon as the primary arbiter of truth, the way of knowing. And if science says it's true, then it's true. But but science as an endeavor has had to ignore a, a huge area of our existence, that being our inner life and everything associated with it. And therefore, we've been uh, very limited in the kinds of knowledge that science has produced, and therefore very limited in terms of the benefits that it could be providing to us as people and to society. And again, for our listeners who are not familiar, please describe the scientific method. Yeah, the scientific method, you know, science is basically, it's a way of knowing, and it's simply a systematic way of knowing. And there are a set, set of tools and which begin with typically an idea or an inspiration that a person has, they wanna learn about something. And then typically within that, there's creation of ideas of an answer. Once I study this, my hypothesis is this is going to lead to that. And then I set up a series of experiments to test them. And the, the, the systematic aspect has to do with doing repeated experiments using the same methodology, the same uh, approach. And, and that's typically gets into the idea of validity of scientific method. Is it valid? Am I really testing the thing that I want to test? And are the findings that are coming out related to the phenomenon in general? And, and that's basically it. And uh, it, it's a huge endeavor, as I said, and science is beautiful because it, can, it does give us insight into many phenomenon. But it's just been limited in terms of what, what was out of bounds that scientists could and, and could not pursue. So if you take something like psychic phenomena, for example, precognition, the ability to know something before it actually transpires in the physical world, there's no way of studying that on an, exper on an experimental basis. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch -ch -ch -chumba. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Ch -ch -ch -chumba. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And I know many people that, that do work in this area. The Institute of Noetic Sciences in Petaluma, California comes to mind. And there are scientists there who have been doing their best to formulate scientific studies, to study so-called psychic phenomenon and psi and the universality of consciousness and the effects of thoughts in, in one person affecting the thoughts of another at a distance and many, many, many methods. And they've had good findings over the years. I think one of the challenges is the, the, the methods that are used, at least in terms of the technologies that are available to us, limit what can be perceived 
And often the signal that's being perceived is very small. It's, say, statistically significant and repeatable, but the effect is so small that most other scientists just discount it as not important. And things like quantum physics, quantum non-locality, the study is about 12 or 15 years ago where they were actually able to take photographs of the body producing photons. Oh, yeah. That, that's a beautiful area of research. I have some familiarity with it. Our body does indeed produce uh, photons, uh, biophotons, as you mentioned. And typically, it's interesting that, at least in the research being done so far, the body tends to produce more photons when it's not well, b- because uh, it's an oxidative reduction uh, process of how the body produces photons through mitochondria. And There are studies showing, for example, when a person closes their eyes and begins to meditate, the amount of biophotons the body is producing goes down over time as the body begins its repair mechanisms and becomes comes more into a sympathetic type of relaxation state. It's it's a beautiful area. Of course, there's the whole area of the the so-called biofield, the the auric energy around the body. And there are people working hard these days to develop instruments to be able to validly and reliably measure that aspect of the of the light that the body uh, has around it on a continual basis that we've often seen in religious paintings and so forth, the halo, the aura. And as I said, no one's managed to do a good job yet, but they're working hard to create devices for that. Absolutely. What inspired your just published book, Science, Being and Becoming, the spiritual lives of scientists. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that question. There were a couple of things, and one of them was that over the years at the university, I often had students knocking on my door who were wanting to pursue more of a spiritual life, who were starting to learn meditation and yoga and beginning to have insights into their own self and the world around them that didn't really match the the typical materialistic mindset that that at least the institution where I've been most of my career has in, as far as its science, scientific perspective. And uh, we'd have conversations that, you know what, it's very possible. You can maintain developing a deep spiritual life, but also operate in this materialistic environment, even though it's a bit contradictory, but but you can do it. And that might help you evolve into a different direction of your career in the future. So part of my interest in writing the book was just to share stories of more senior scientists who have been at this a while, who have had very active spiritual lives, and how it's influenced their work, of course, on their day-to-day living. And so I'm hoping that it does help inspire young scientists and also uh, anyone who reads it, because in addition to the stories of the scientists sharing their own metaphysical and mystical journeys. There's a lot of information in there about the general, we could say the journey of consciousness development as as pictured across different traditions. Before we had discussed a little bit about your concern about your colleagues' reactions, since the book has come out, have there been any reactions? <laughs> I haven't gotten any yet. Uh, I guess what I could do is I could go on the Amazon webpage one of these days and just see what kind of reviews are being posted. But no one's Uh, written me directly about it. Um, We'll see. (laughs) I don't know. It's an interesting problem. You know, one of the things that this show, Destination Unlimited, 
is predicated on the crossroads of science and spirituality, something that's been a recurring theme throughout my personal life, even though I've never been a formal scientist, but I've been involved in engineering and such, and also had experiences that could not be explained within the material world. And when I was younger, I would be afraid to share my experiences with others for fear of, of being ridiculed and not being believed. I remember having an experience when I was seven years old where I was very close with my paternal grandfather. And uh, I was sitting in my room one day and I looked up and my grandfather was standing there. I didn't hear him come in or see him come in. I said, Grandpa, where did you come from? And they didn't say a word, just smiled and then sort of faded away. And I went into the living room where my parents were seated, and I said, Grandpa was here. And they said, oh, you're imagining things again. I was one of those kids who was labeled with an overactive imagination. Mm -hmm. And a few moments went by, the phone rang with word of my grandfather's passing. So they looked at me, they looked at each other. Obviously, everybody was upset, but they were sort of blown away at the fact that I had this experience. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I learned to sort of buckle down and not share with too many people until my personal spiritual life reopened in my mid to late 30s. So I, I understand completely where the hesitancy comes from. My guest is Paul J. Mills. His brand new book, Science, Being and Becoming, The Spiritual Lives of Scientists. Paul, please tell our listeners where they can get your book and find out more about you and this amazing work. Yes, the book is available at Amazon, and it's also available at the publisher's website, and the publisher is Sacred Stories Publishing. And do you have a website? I do. I have a website at the University of California, San Diego. It's uh, if people just searched UC San Diego, Paul J. Mills, it'll pop up right at the top of the list. And we'll be back with more of Paul after these words on the OM Times Radio Network. The best of the holistic, spiritual, and conscious world. Om Times Radio. IOM FM. Om Times Magazine is one of the leading online content providers of positivity, wellness, and personal empowerment. A philanthropic organization, their net proceeds are funneled to support worldwide charity initiatives via Humanity Healing International. Through their commitment to creating community and providing conscious content, they aspire to uplift humanity on a global scale. Ohm Times, co-creating a more conscious lifestyle. Imagine yourself being transported to India, to the banks of the Ganga, and an ashram in Rishikesh. Visualize that you are welcome to satsang with an American sannyasi who shares the wisdom of her guru. Your visualization has manifested. Join Satvi Bhagawati Saraswati for inspiration and transformation every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on Ohm Times Radio. If I could be you. And you could be me. For just one hour. If you could find a way. To get inside. Each other's mind. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. We've all felt left out. And for some, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Walk a mile in my shoes. Hello, I'm Sandy Sedgbeer, host of Om Times Magazine's flagship radio show, What is Going On? My passion is sifting through information, research and innovations from new thought teachers, speakers and researchers pushing back the boundaries of what we know about life, energy, metaphysics and the universe. 
I love shifting perceptions about who we are, why we're here, and how quickly impossible becomes normal when we open our minds, expand our awareness, and accept that the only limits that exist are those we place upon ourselves. So if you're the kind of forward-thinking, eager investigator of what lies beyond the current reality that most perceive, why not make a date to come play with me in the field of possibilities at 4pm Pacific Time, 7pm Eastern Time every Thursday, and together we can discover what's really going on. Back on Destination Unlimited, my guest this week, Paul J. Mills, his new book, Science, Being and Becoming the Spiritual Lives of Scientists. Paul, the book opens with an introduction by Deepak Chopra and a special commentary by Ken Wilbur, a couple of heavyweights in the field. Give us a couple of comments on what they shared. Yes, I was very fortunate that for those contributions, uh, as you noted, they're heavyweights in the field, and they both contributed a lot of wisdom to putting the book into perspective. Uh, Deepak's forward spoke a lot about the history of the materialistic sciences, how it came to be, and really the limitations. And I was hinting at some of this earlier in terms of having certain areas of research off, off, uh, off base, so to speak. And his his um, forward discussed that and what the adverse consequences have been and how we need to move forward uh, to, to begin to open these endeavors up more and more. Ken Wilbur, his, his was focused more on the consciousness side of things in the sense of much of the book is about the consciousness development journey of many scientists that I interviewed. And uh, Ken's piece had to do with the different stages that we as human beings can encounter along the spiritual journey. That first stage being what he calls waking up. And waking up historically is, is also termed self-realization, enlightenment, amongst others. And then he also speaks about this phenomenon, he calls it growing up, which means becoming more mature. Uh, uh, um, Jung's term comes to mind, being individuated. Uh, self-actualized according to Maslow, but this idea that in addition to having our realizations about our spiritual nature, we also need to develop our human mind-body egoic system. And those terms, as I said, are often called self-actualization, individuation, to make ourselves as a person as much as we can be to come into our own gifts. And another stage he speaks about is cleaning up. And Ken's referring to that where we have to do our own business sometimes whether it's psychotherapy or introspection, contemplation, how do we examine our inner life and find those areas that we need to confront and improve and overcome? And then the last stage Ken speaks about is called showing up. And showing up is essentially, once we know who we are in the world and what our gifts are, it's incumbent upon us to show up, to go out into the society amongst our culture and give our gifts back to community. So it's it's waking up, growing up, cleaning up and showing up. And that's what Ken wrote about. And that was very relevant to the book because the interviews amongst the scientists, I cover stories of those who had waking up experiences and 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 showing up experiences and so forth. And and so that's really what those two were about. 
in science being and becoming the spiritual lives of scientists as you mentioned you have a series of interviews with scientists how did you choose them and who were some that you chose yeah well i chose them because i had met some of these folks at scientific meetings over the years uh some of them including i had met at the deepak chopra center in carlsbad california so i had a sense that there was an aspect of their scientific work that was beyond just the materialism. Uh, Deepak for years has hosted uh, a, com a, a conference that he calls Sages and Scientists, where sages, you know, yoga teachers, meditation teachers, etc., would come and have conversations with scientists. Of course, many scientists are also sages, and many sages are also scientists, and back and forth. So I met people there uh, as a result of that. Some I uh, just had known about some of their work. Perhaps they wrote a book that I read and I thought they'd be a good fit. In addition to the scientists I interviewed, I reached out uh, to quite a few who said, you know what? I, I do have metaphysical experiences and mystical experiences that would be relevant to your book, but I do not feel comfortable sharing them. And so I won't participate. And there were a couple who also said, my particular meditative tradition, and these were Buddhist traditions. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Uh, discouraged the sharing of such personal experiences, so they didn't uh, participate. And I, and I say that because I suspect there are many more scientists out there who do have a deeply spiritual life, particularly the last decade or more, as many people who we were speaking earlier when we were younger, learning meditation, there are many people out there who have been doing this for decades who have developed a spiritual life, but were habituated to keep it more in the closet. So that's how I chose people uh, to be in the book. And how were these interviews structured and what types of questions did you initially ask? Oh, yeah, that, that's interesting because it evolved, Victor, over time. I originally had a list of probably 15 or 16 questions that I wanted to pursue. But quickly, within the course of the first four or five interviews, I found that there were just a subset of those questions that resonated for each of the interviewees. And so the rest of the interviews, I limited to those. And the questions were along these lines. The first was, if you've had... Uh, any type of transpersonal or metaphysical or mystical experience, please share it with me. And uh, they would speak about that. And then I would ask them about um, what 
allies and mentors have you had who have helped you cultivate these experiences and also help cultivate your scientific work as you were trying to integrate all this information into your life? There's a section I also speak about uh, in the book, Adversaries. And because sometimes when we go on these trails, these paths of our lives, we encounter people or that that kind of shut us down uh, as far as uh, believing what we're up to. And uh, this is outlined in Joseph Campbell's monomyth, the uh, typically called uh, the, the hero's journey or the heroine's journey. And then I would also ask them about how they're giving back. Now that you have this degree of awakeness inside you and you know about the reality of the spiritual existence of other people, how are you showing up to help them uncover their own gifts? And some of the scientists are active teaching uh, professors at universities as I am, and therefore they would do their best to communicate some of the information uh, in their lectures. And that's really how it was all structured. Now, you had mentioned that this process evolved. How did it evolve? It evolved in the sense of as as early on as I were doing my initial interviews, I started having ideas around the so-called monomyth or the, the hero's journey. And I realized that, gosh, each each person that I'm interviewing, it's it's like they've been on the the hero's journey, the heroine's journey, meaning they were displaying the classic stages of this so-called monomyth. The monomyth being, this is a uh, common mythology amongst cultures all around the world, cultures that had evolved independently of each other centuries and millennia ago. And the very first stage of the so-called monomyth is called heeding the call. And what does that mean? Well, it means that a person's living their normal day-to-day life, and then suddenly something happens, some type of inspiration. I would say for me, the heating the call was that out-of-body experience under the oak tree. Suddenly I'm living a life and I'm presented with something that's completely novel and different, giving me an indication that it's now time to take my life in such and such a direction. Each of the scientists I interviewed had such a calling. And for many of the scientists, they had it when they were very young children. And then that led them to become a scientist. Others had it when they were already a scientist, and many of them had been more in the deeply materialistic mindset of science. They had a spiritual opening, and then they realized, oh, I need to radically change my belief systems and begin a new trajectory for my life. So it evolved in the sense of, as I heard these early experiences from the scientists, I resculpted my questions around these major stages of heeding the call, of uh, meeting a mentor, a supporter, meeting an adversary. How are you overcoming the adversary? And then there's also, in the monomyth, there's a stage called death and resurrection. It doesn't mean literal death, but it means death of the ego in the sense of the person whom I believed I was is now dead because I've come into such knowledge or such a spiritual experience that my prior self, as I knew myself to be, I can no longer believe in that self. I can no longer operate from that perspective, which typically is a more limited perspective. And and facing that can be very difficult, depending on the person and the circumstance. But ultimately, the resurrection comes when the person who's had a kind of rebirth 
then can continue with their life and importantly, bring themselves back into culture in a more meaningful, contributory way. Did any of those who had the awakening have a delay between the awakening and embracing that path? Yeah, yeah, there were some. Uh, and I, I think there's a different degrees of, say, resistance. And th that's an interesting feature because sometimes we can have a spiritual experience and we just turn away from it and go back to the person we wanted to be. There's a story I tell in the book, and her name is, uh, she's a scientist, Professor Dusana Dorje, and she's at York University in the UK. And she had studied Buddhism meditation, and specifically, she became very deeply involved in a form of compassion meditation. And as a result of practicing that, she found herself moving into what's often called a non-duality consciousness state, or non-dual awareness. And in this particular state, it's radically different than a person's normal perception, which is of separation, meaning I'm me, you're you, I'm here, you're over there. In non-dual awareness, everything is one, is perceived and known to be one. And it can take a while to get used to, and it, it can be difficult to adapt to. And she found that it was very difficult. And she was turning kind of the other direction. And what really helped her, she ended up shortly thereafter going to a conference where she met a Buddhist priest. And she said, hey, I'd like to speak with you. Would you give me a few minutes? And, and the priest said, yes. And she shared her experience with the priest. And the priest basically said, well, this is good. This is normal development. And, and you can either proceed with it now or you can turn around and go back to what Buddhists typically call the conditioned reality, conditioned reality. And when she heard the uh, Buddhist priest say that, she began to cry because she realized she was really at a choice point. Does she go back to the familiar that she knew herself to be in the prior all the years of her life? Or does she reject that kind of conditioned reality of beliefs about who and what I was and embrace this new way of perception adapt to it, and let its gifts begin to unfold more and more in her. And of course, that's what she chose. And and uh, she's continued her journey since then. And she made many very significant contributions to the book, as far as the stories and the overall message that I'm trying to convey in the book. Similar to the concept of readiness in time, where we have to go through a certain number of experiences before we're ready to embrace a change or a new path. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Uh, my wife is a medic, Tiffany Brasotti. She's a medical intuitive, and she likes to say, life never gives us anything that we're not ready to handle. Yeah, absolutely. If you, can, you can choose to turn away from it, but the fact is, if it's come to you, you're ready. And even if it's going to be hard for you to embrace and move forward with that, uh, you know, please do. <laughs> I've had a, a number of synchronicities, wonderful, wonderful synchronicities happen in my life. And each time one of those synchronicities was presented to me, I had three choices. I could say, yes, I have to move forward with this. This is what I've been waiting for. I could say, you know what, that's interesting. But right now I'm not ready to make that move and file it away for later. Or you could discard it out of hand. And every time I've said that big why, that yes, the next one comes and the next one comes. And it's just a <laughs> wonderful unfoldment on the path 
a quick <laughs> personal story. In 1975, I was stationed in Korea. I was in the Air Force. And uh, I was having a problem with my back, and a friend suggested acupuncture. And I found a acupuncturist off base. And little did I know that in those days, uh, two things. Number one, acupuncturists were not using disposable or their sterilization techniques were not the greatest. And number two, hepatitis was endemic in the Korean population. Many people carried it without having symptoms. I had the acupuncture treatment and uh, the, my back felt much better. And two weeks later, I woke up one morning, looked in the mirror and my eyes were yellow. I said, oh, <laughs> what's going on here? So I went to the base hospital and they looked at me and said, you have hepatitis. And they admitted me. And during the course of the admission, uh, one day the doctor, the attending physician came over and said, do you have a will? And I said, no. They said, you need to have a will. I said, why? They said, well, you're, in very, you're very seriously ill. They had actually sent a telegram back to my mother here in New York through the Red Cross saying, your son is very seriously ill and his prognosis is not good. In any event, uh, one day I had a voice in my head say to the doctor, can I see a picture of a healthy liver? And he said, what do you mean? I said, do you have something with a picture of a liver, normal liver? He said, why? I said, I just want to look at it. He said, okay. He brought me an anatomy book with a picture of a healthy liver, and I started studying it. And after a few minutes, I put the book down, and the voice said, place your palms over your abdomen. Okay. I, I, I listened, and I placed my hands over my abdomen. I felt this wonderful, wonderful tingling and this warmth and started meditating. And at some point, I fell asleep. The next morning at 5 a.m., the nurse woke me up, apologized for waking me up, said she had to draw some blood. She drew some blood. Two hours later, she came back and she said, the lab messed up. We have to take another sample. <laughs> Short time after, the doctor came in and said, what would you do last night after I gave you the book? And I told him, he says, you're crazy. I said, why? He said, because last night we did not expect you to survive. And this morning, your liver enzymes are almost normal. We've never seen anything like that happen. Now, mm -hmm. You would think I would have jumped out of bed, said Eureka, and this would have been my path, my path forward. But I wasn't ready. And I sort of went back to sleep until my mid to late 30s when my spiritual path and my healing path reopened again. So mm. I know exactly what you're talking about. With this. That, that is such a beautiful and inspirational story. Thank, thank you for sharing it. Thank you for listening. And my guest is Paul J. Mills, his new book. Science, Being and Becoming, The Spiritual Lives of Scientists. We'll be back with more after these words on the OM Times Radio Network. Humanity Healing International is a small nonprofit with a big dream. Since 2007, HHI has been working tirelessly to bring help to communities with little or no hope. Our projects are not broad mandates, nor are they overnight solutions but they bring the reassurance that no one is alone and that someone cares. To learn more, please visit HumanityHealing.org. Humanity Healing is where your heart is. More than 24 million Americans have an autoimmune disorder, and that number continues to grow. I'm Sharon Saylor, and I'm one of those 24 million. To put that number in perspective, cancer affects about 9 million and heart disease up to 22 million. That's why I've brought together top experts and those thriving regardless of their diagnosis to bring you the latest, most up-to-date information. Join me, Sharon Saylor, Friday night, 7 p.m. Eastern, for the Autoimmune Hour on Life Interrupted Radio to find out how to live your life uninterrupted. So I'm a cat, and I just moved in with this new human, and she's got this little toy she's always playing with all day long. Tap, 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 bloop, bloop. She can't put it down. There it is. Oh, and get this. She even talks to it. Last week, she asked it for Chinese. And guess what? 
egg rolls showed up like magic. Humans have cool toys. A person is the best thing to happen to a shelter pet. Be that person. Adopt. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the shelterpetproject.org. Hey, Dad. Your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad. Your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey. Why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can. But it's just as important to take time for yourself. AARP can help. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org slash caregiving. That's aarp.org slash caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Look out, world, we're getting strong. The future's here and we belong. Learn more at Chic and STEM. A message brought to you by the Ad Council. Back on Destination Unlimited, my guest this week, Paul J. Mills, his brand new book, Science, Being and Becoming, The Spiritual Lives of Scientists. Paul, I think you wanted to comment about what I shared at the end of the last segment. I do, yeah. You were sharing about Basically, you were you healed your liver uh, right. through inspiration in the voice and doing some hands-on healing. Right. The physician immediately said, you're crazy. And that reminded me when you told the story of you uh, perceiving your grandfather who had just passed away and you shared it with your parents and your parents looked at each other like you're imagining. And that is has been historically such a common response because we've all been, as a culture, so socialized. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Out of our spiritual lives, out of our metaphysical and mystical lives, as something that really is normal, but as a society, we've discounted it. And and honestly, that's another reason that I wrote the book, because I want people to read stories about other individuals who routinely have had such experiences and how it's enriched their life, the creativity of their life, the meaning of their life, their sense of purpose and place really in the world and the universe. And uh, that that's another reason I put the book together, and I hope it can have such a, a meritorious effect for people. Absolutely. And in our world, which we shared, is in such need of compassion and a reopening to one another and an understanding, a deeper understanding of our interrelationship with everything and everyone. I think your book is so important. So thank you for creating this for us. Thank you. 
Yeah. And if I can mention more about compassion, I, I shared a bit of a story earlier from Professor Dusana Dorje out of the UK. And she's been a deep compassion meditation practitioner. And that really led to her, let's say, a, a self-realization experience. I also asked her for the book to write what's called a spotlight. In addition to the foreword by Deepak Chopra, you mentioned, and the commentary by Ken Wilber, I also have four spotlights in the books. And these are kind of mini chapters, each that delve into uh, different topics of relevance to the book. And for Dusana, I asked her to write a piece about compassion and its importance along the spiritual journey. And the, the, the summary of that would be something like this, that compassion is such a powerful experience. It's such a powerful technique to employ on a regular basis in our lives that it helps us overcome our egotism. And by egotism, I mean that strong sense of separation of ourselves from other people, from other other things in our environment. You, you were saying earlier, there's so much judgment going on these days that we need compassion. And one of the scientists in the book simply said that judgment is observation without love. And compassion helps us foster love for other people, not only ourselves, self-compassion, but but for other people. And then judgment falls away, and we see other individuals for who and what they are, basically part of the holistic uh, life. Uh, this, the sense of duality begins to melt away. So I'm a big advocate for practicing compassion and would encourage listeners who don't have such a practice to do some reading about it and see how they can begin to bring that more regularly into their life. Are there one or two impressions from your interviews that you would like to share with our listeners? Hmm. Yeah, I'll tell you another story. And I shared that some of the scientists had been psychic as, as children or clairvoyant or clairaudient, and that led them to become scientists because they knew there was another world beyond the typical physical world they were experiencing. And they thought, well, science is a way of knowing and studying things. I'll become a scientist. And I also mentioned that there were some scientists who had been very materialistic, never had a spiritual insight or experience in their life, and were just trolling along doing that work. And one of these scientists, his name's William Bushell, and he had an experience in his mid-50s. And he uh, went to uh, sit down uh, to just to relax and he suddenly went into an altered state of consciousness where he perceived above him what he called a goddess. A dakini is the word he used, essentially a goddess. And this being was radiant with light and was looking upon him with such love, such total compassion, that it, it opened up his different energy centers in his body and his consciousness expanded. And another part of the experience, he knew without a doubt that he was part of the divine. And this type of experience is often called one of imminent divinity, where we realize our divinity through the um, status of the experience. Of course, this was radically transformative for him. It changed his life, the direction of his life, and also how he continued to pursue his, his scientific work. Were any of the answers to your questions surprising to you? Hmm. That's a very good question. I, I'd say 
some of the surprise was early on realizing the depth of experience that many of the scientists shared with me. And, and I wrote a little chat, uh, a couple of paragraphs in the book that as the interviews went on and I was realizing the depths of some of the scientists' individual journeys and how they've been trying to cope with them as far as balancing the spiritual and the material, I, I wrote that I, it made me sad. <laughs> and the reason it made me sad is because some of these individuals I had known for many years. I had met them at scientific meetings, as I indicated earlier, and we would just chat about whatever the science was. And neither of us ever felt we had an opening to, to share this other part of our life that in many ways is more meaningful and, and to me more, more real. And so I, that, that, that is one of the pieces that came out of the book, just that sense of surprise, of realization of so many people on the similar journey, and that I had missed speaking with them about that. And going forward now, when I meet people, I just have more of an awareness of the possibilities and try to get there if possible. You know, it's interesting that you say that. One of the things that I've personally experienced while conducting these podcasts has been synchronicity with my guests, even a sense of familiarity with the emphasis on the word family. Did you experience these with your interviews? Yeah, just I just developed such a deep sense of love, really, for each of the people that I've interviewed, and I feel very connected with them now. And I, as it was over 30 scientists I interviewed, and I sent each one a copy of the book and I wrote a little inscription. And it wasn't just, thanks for the interview, Paul. It was a deep message to them, particularly about something they had shared with me uh, in, in the course of the interview. So yes, a sense of compassion, sense of love and connectedness as a result of doing this uh, this, this work together. And what, what other impact did conducting these interviews have on you personally? Mm. It felt liberating to me, Victor, in the sense of historically, I too have been a scientist where with my spiritual life in the closet, because it just seems so incompatible with the kind of work I was doing in the institution that I've been most of my career. And now I just, it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote the book, I've shared a lot in there. I feel good that that I'm integrating these two parts of myself now uh, out there uh, professionally and personally. You know, it's funny that you say that. In my late 30s, as my spiritual path reopened, I was attending a series of what they called New Age Salons here in New York, where people would gather together in the home of this wonderful older woman, and she would have speakers and presentations who would talk about some of the topics that we're talking about right now. And one evening during, a tent, during the uh, salon, uh, some material was shared which I was not comfortable with, and the wonderful woman who was the hostess noticed that I was not comfortable. And when the evening was closing, she said, would you mind hanging around for a few minutes? I said, of course. And she came over to me and she said, Victor, I see that some of the stuff that we shared tonight was troublesome to you. May I share something with you? And I said, of course. And very lovingly, like a mother, she said to me, God does not require us to be holy, but God would love for us to be whole. <laughs> when she said that about embracing one's wholeness mm -hmm. and accepting and taking in everything that is meaningful, and then meaningful not only to us, but the way we extend that to others is the definition of what we're here to do. Another beautiful story you shared, and I'm with you 100% on that. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about science embracing its wholeness. Yeah, science itself being healed, 
much yeah. as uh, we're advocating for each individual person to be healed. And the healing for me, the, the main healing a person can come into is what you were just saying that lady shared with you is coming into wholeness. It's moving out of separation, the belief in separation, the experience of separation, coming into wholeness that you you experience and know yourself to be something so much more and interconnected with everything and everyone. That's 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 healing. That's what I would say is well-being. Absolutely. True well-being. Reminds me of an old Moody Blues lyric with the eyes of a child. You will come out and see that your world's spinning round and through life you will be a small part of a whole of a love that exists with the eyes of a child you will see. Hmm. There it is. There it is. Do you see materialist science evolving as more scientists are open to sharing their spiritual experiences? I do see that. For, for the interviews I've conducted, it was inevitable that each of these scientists began to move their research into areas that were typically more taboo and off limits. Some were more willing or able to do it because they were at institutions that had a little more openness to it. Some had to do it more quietly because the institutions where they were, uh, it was more difficult. But it, it is happening. And so as, as, as scientists heal themselves, as far as overcoming the separation and coming into to union, then certainly the science that they conduct will be more healed. And then hopefully it resonates out into the different disciplines and there's more of a, a healing. So science can really come into its potential, which is to use its great methodology and of course resources. I mean, science around the planet is billions and billions of dollars a year. And if we could take some of that and put it into research to begin to understand our foundational nature and also help people to meet it more, that will be uh, more of a fulfillment of, of of the let's say the duty and the promise of science what would you like your readers to take away from science being and becoming the spiritual lives of scientists mm. i would say that my readers should know that each of us have implicit within us such a wholeness and capacity for expanding our experience of our own selves in the world around us to move and develop our consciousness into a much more meaningful and inclusive life. The stories of the scientists are examples, but there are many other people around the world who have such experiences and share them under different circumstances. So to know that it's possible to do this, uh, to have a sense of encouragement to embark on such a path if you're not already on there. And then as you have more of these realizations and come more into your own self, uh, be sure to share your gifts, whatever they are, however they manifest uh, with others. Wonderful. Thank you for saying that. My guest, Paul J. Mills, his book, Science, Being and Becoming, The Spiritual Lives of Scientists. Paul, one more time, please tell our listeners where they can get your book and find out more about you and your work. Well, the book's on Amazon. Pretty easy to find if you just search my name, Paul J. Mills, under the book section, this book will pop up. Or you can go to the publisher's website, which is Spiritual Stories Publishing and Light on Light Press. Paul, thank you so much for joining us and sharing this amazing and wonderful research and a real message that our world needs today. You're welcome, Victor. And thank you for having me. And thank you for sharing your stories from your own life and journey. I really appreciated hearing them. 
Thank you. And thank you for joining us on Destination Unlimited. I'm Victor, the voice, Berman. Have a wonderful week.